Well, as Nick mentioned, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. And would you go ahead and turn there? And then once you get there, let's take a few moments of silent meditation to prepare our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. Lord, as we direct our attention now towards your word, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have to show us, um, that you would help us to pay attention to your word in the midst of the chaos of life around us and the things that may be on our heart as we came here. I pray that while we may not forget those things, that you would help us to think about the cares and concerns of our life in the light of your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start out with an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll leave Nick to his area of expertise. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got your hopes up. <laughs> I, I couldn't even if I tried. <laughs> um, I'll stick to my area of expertise, um, and that's sports analogies. Um, so um, we're out of football season. Super Bowl was last week. Uh, this week is the beginning of baseball season, uh, which... Many of you may not know that pitchers and catchers reported to spring training, so it's kind of this transitional time in the world of professional sports. And um, as I was reading through and preparing uh, the sermon, this passage kind of reminded me um, of a tradition that the Cubs have, and this tradition is called Flying the W. Uh, It started back in the 1930s when Mr. Wrigley uh, was building this giant scoreboard in the outfield, and he wanted to have a way that they could declare if the team had won or lost that day. And so they came up with these flags, one large flag that had a giant W on it and another one that had an L on it. And if the team had won, they would raise the W flag, which looks something like this. And the team would sing and celebrate and everyone would be happy. And they raise it up so that people who were walking by who weren't able to attend the game that day would know if the Cubs had won. And even it was placed in such a way that if you were riding by on the L train, you could actually look out your window and see the flag for that day. If it was uh, a white flag with a W or a blue flag with an L. So I will put the flag away for now. But as you get the picture, this was a way of celebrating, a way of declaring that victory had been won. And as we get to Hannah's song here, she begins to do the same thing. This is her celebration, her declaration of victory. Um, We do this in our lives, too. We don't necessarily put, like, a flag out in our front yard saying, I won today, I'm winning at life. Um, But we do other things, like um, sometimes you go into offices and people display diplomas or accolades, or I have trophies hanging in my office for some reason for, like, silly things that I won in the past that it's just kind of up as um, a silly thing. 
But we do other things. Maybe it's not trophies or diplomas. Maybe it's a picture that we put up on the fridge of our, that our child painted that we're especially proud of, or a test or a quiz that they got an A-plus on, or maybe even more so modern, we post things on social media to demonstrate how we're winning at life. The, the beautiful family picture, a, a picture of a delicious meal, or a sunset on the beach as you relax on your vacation. These are all ways that we declare that we are winning at life. And I know there's more to just like, here, everyone, take a look, I'm winning. Um, but that is one thing that we do. We kind of celebrate the moment, the happiness, the joy of that. And this is where Hannah's coming from. So as we get to chapter 2, we encounter Hannah's victory song. It's her way of declaring that she's been victorious over her adversary. Um, however, Hannah's song is different than the typical trophy on the mantle. And so as we look at her song, we're going to examine three things. We're first going to see how she celebrates the victory. Then she's going to tell us how the victory is won. And then we're going to consider what victory in life actually looks like. So we'll see how she celebrates the victory, how the victory is won, and what victory looks like. So let's start with the first three verses of chapter 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So the first line says that Hannah prayed, and this is her prayer, but as we go, it'll look really similar to what we see in the Psalms, and what she's actually praying is a song. It's similar to how in our lives we might take songs that we hear and we kind of appropriate them into our lives because they hit us in a certain way or they, they mean certain things. And so she is singing. And the song would have been one that was traditionally done in um, the church. It was part of their liturgy or in the temple to sing of God's victory. Um, and it, it was especially tied to the idea of the, a king having a military victory. So you kind of get the mindset that Hannah's in, that she's like, I've, I've defeated my enemy. I have, I've won a victory the way that a king might win a battle. Um, so to understand what Hannah's celebrating, I'll give you a little bit of background just to recap the last two weeks. Um, so Hannah is one of the two wives of Elkanah, and uh, Panina, is that how you're pronouncing it, Nick? Panina? Okay. Um, Panina, the other wife, she has many children. Hannah, who is the favored wife, has no children. And this goes on for a long time, Panina taunting and ridiculing Hannah because of her situation. And Hannah eventually gets to the tabernacle. She's weeping and praying and crying out to God that he would give her a son. And God answers her prayer, gives her a son, and she vows that she would dedicate this son to the temple. So when her son Samuel is weaned, she takes him to the temple, dedicates him, and he stays at the temple. And this song is coming right after this, that she's singing this song um, as she dedicates. Um, so the first thing that she does in this song is she praises the Lord. She says that, my heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. This is all things that we talk about a lot, our horns being exalted. We all know what this means, right? It's, it's one of those things where I had to look into it, and even after I looked into it, I still don't fully understand the metaphor. But in the old times, the horn was something that an animal would have that would demonstrate its strength or its ability. So if you think of a horn being exalted, think of a bull kind of strutting around after... 
um, goring a matador or somehow having its victory. It's demonstrating its strength, its victory, that it's won. And when she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord, she's saying that my strength is in the Lord. Or in modern day, we'd say that she's flexing Jesus um, or something of that effect. She is demonstrating her strength, but showing that her strength is from the Lord. So in victory, she's showing that she has her strength. The next thing she says is that her mouth derides her enemies. In Hebrew, this literally means that I open my mouth wide at my enemies. So the, the term deriding, we kind of think is taunting, or you kind of get this idea that she just won and she's doing the whole neener, 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 or um, whatever it is to show that her enemies, that she's victorious. But really, she's saying that she's opening her mouth almost as if she's devouring her enemies, that she has the victory. And she's doing so as she's opening her mouth, rejoicing in God's salvation. So we see that she's not coming at this arrogantly, that her victory song isn't a taunting song. It's not something that she's trying to put down her enemies. She is rejoicing in the fact that God has given her victory, and she puts all um, the praise and the honor to God. So um, she's celebrating the win. And if we go back to our example of flying the W, there is somebody who actually like exists in the scoreboard during the Cubs game because it's like one of those old timey scoreboards where they have to put like wooden pieces out to show the scores, and then at the end of the game, that person physically raises up a flag. That person that's raising it up is thinking, "We won," as he raises that flag. That person had nothing to do with them winning that day. Like whether or not he was there, they still would have won. And a lot of times when we think about victory in life and we have the win, like. We're in that position, or it's the same as if someone comes to you and be like, how did Ohio State to do? And you're like, we won, as if you were on Ohio State's team and had anything to do. But we claim it as our own, as a fan of the team. And here, we can also claim God's victory as our own. We are part of the team of God, but yet it is God the one that is doing it. And what Hannah doesn't do is come and say, I won, I did this, this was my own working. No, she puts honor where honor is due and praises God. Now, I know we're talking a lot about celebrating victory, and um, some of you, maybe like me, are not really in a season of victory in life, or at least it doesn't feel like it. Um, life has felt hard, uh, the defeats feel frequent, and the idea of singing a victory song is just really far removed from your daily reality. Um, we relate more to Hannah maybe in the pre-Samuel time, where she's crying out, um, because of the situation in her life, then we do relate to Hannah singing the victory song. And this next portion of Hannah's songs speaks more to those of us who may go to bed every night feeling like we're raising the L flag in life. Um, so it's not all just victory all the time. So to consider this now, and especially for those who may feel like you're not really in a victorious season of life, we're going to look at how the victory is won. This is in verses 4 through 7. It says, The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to be hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. This whole section is about a change of fortunes. We get a list of contrasting situations. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, so those who are exalted brought down, but the feeble are the ones that bind up strength. The winners fall, the losers rise. In verse 5, those who are full are now 
hungry. They've hired themselves out just for bread. While those who are hungry are no longer hungry, they're full. So if you feel feeble and you feel hungry, maybe your ears are perking up at this time that there's hope. Even the barren woman now has seven children, and the one who has many children is forlorn. These comparisons are all in the passive voice. We just know that there's a shift in um, in situation, but we're not told who is making the change. We're not telling if the, the poor are making themselves rich or if someone is making them rich. But the next two verses, um, Hannah's song, she elevates it. She kind of gives more information, saying in verse 6, that it is the Lord that brings to life. It is the Lord who brings down to Sheol and raises up. So the Lord is the one that's doing these things. It's not the strength of the individuals that's making them happen. The victory is won because God has decided that the victory will be won. And depending on your view of God, this might seem like a good thing, a bad thing, or a really confusing thing. If you view God like many of the ancients did as some capricious, temperamental being who acts in does whatever he feels like in the moment, this is terrifying because in one moment he might make you rich and the next moment he might make you poor. In the moment he might just decide that it is time for you to die instead of to live anymore. Um, but this isn't the God that we worship. This is, there's a God who we know is good and we, we need to really keep reading to understand how it is that God uses his sovereign power because all we know is that he has the power to make this change. So we know that we should celebrate what God has done from what Hannah has done. We celebrate, and we celebrate because God is the one who changes the fortune. But now we need to look at the end of this, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, considering what actual victory looks like and how does God bring about this victory. So let's read together verses 8 through 10. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So this is what victory looks like. Um, We see in the beginning that, again, the Lord is the one who raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap. And it says that the pillars of the earth are the Lord, and on them he has set the world. So we talk a lot about creation and God being the one that created. And he created everything that we see. We know that he created the grass, the animals, the sky, the, the stars, and the sun, and the moon. But beyond that, he also created a system of how the world functions. He created all of the laws of nature that we have as they function. He also created laws of blessing and how people are, are blessed. We can think of this kind of like um, how he has um, established the rules. If you've, ever, if you've ever played a new game, the first thing that you do is you look at the rules and you try to determine what are the rules and how, how do I go about winning? Um, I, I had an example where this wasn't as easy. Um, shortly after I got married, I went on vacation with Samantha's family, and we broke out the Monopoly board. And I'm like, great, I love Monopoly. I know the rules. I know how to use the rules to my advantage so I can win. I like winning. Um, 
a little bit competitive. So we get to kind of a crucial moment in the game, and I'm like, this is it, I'm gonna make my move. And I don't remember what it was, but I did something that the rules clearly allow, and all of Samantha's brothers say, no, we don't do that, you can't do that. And I'm like, it's right here. They're like, that's not how we played, we've never played that way, we're not playing that way. I'm like, excuse me? The rules right here say I can do this. And they're like, no, we don't do that, sorry. I was outvoted. And I came to learn that day that there are a series of house rules, not written down anywhere, not spoken. You only learn when you break the rules and they correct you. That's the last game of Monopoly I have played with them <laughs> because I'm like, I don't know how to win. I don't know what the rules are. Um, but God, thankfully, he gives us his rules. And there are three rules that we see in verse 9. Um, that He will guard the feet of his faithful ones that the wicked will be cut off in darkness, and that it is not by might that a man shall prevail. So we're going to look at each of these a little in depth and to examine the rules so that way we know how it is that we go about winning. Um, so the first one is that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones. I think if I was to list out a top 10, or you know, if you're on Family Feud and someone said, like, what are the top 10 complaints about God that we hear in the church? I think probably number one, if not the top three, would be how could God let X happen? Um, we so often wrestle with rectifying the sovereignty of God with the brokenness of the world. We know that by no means does God promise an easy life for his faithful ones. He doesn't promise a smooth road. He doesn't promise a road paved with gold, at least not in this lifetime. The reason why we need him to guard our feet is because life isn't easy. We need him to guard our feet because we are weak and the road is treacherous. So in our backyard, um, we have flower beds. And instead of having like nice flat pavers kind of separating the flowers from the garden, we have giant rocks, like small boulders that create this border. And for some reason, my daughters enjoy walking on the rocks. And it is extremely uneasy and Layla enjoys this too. She's like 20 months old and she can barely run across the living room without tripping and falling on her face when there's nothing in the way, just flat ground somehow trips her up. And I know, if I can put it bluntly, she's too weak to walk on the rocks by herself. But because she wants to, I come alongside of her and I will guard, guide her feet, guard her feet so that she doesn't fall and get hurt. And when we go through life, this is what God is like with us. We might think we're strong, but we, we are weak. We don't know how to walk, how to handle things of life on our own. So God comes along to guide our feet, and we can have one of two responses. We can be like the arrogant one-year-old who believes that they're self-sufficient, can do everything themselves, and when God comes to guide, we swat his hand away and say, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I can go the way I want to. I can do things how I want. Or we can accept and trust God that his guiding, the way that he's leading us, is what we really need. And one of the challenges of trusting God in this way is at times it can feel like he is guiding us away from victory, at least away from the victory that we want. When he calls us to do things that seem counterintuitive. Now, I have to admit that one of the most challenging things about preaching on the concept of victory in an American, gospel-believing, evangelical church like ours is defining what it means to have victory. On the one hand, I think our church is hyper-aware of we want to stay away from this idea that victory is the temperamental victory in life, 
that God wants, that um, God loves us, has a plan for us, and wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and popular. Um, we, we're aware that this is a fallen, broken system that our culture too often runs towards, that victory is victory in this life. It's about having um, more stuff and about having a happy life. But I think we can't neglect the fact that in this song, when Hannah talks about the change of fortune, that she talks about physical, earthly things that are changing. She talks about how the hungry are full, how the poor are rich, how the feeble are strong, how the one who is barren has many children. These are all physical things that we experience in life. And too often, because we're avoiding the pitfalls of the prosperity gospel, we're really quick to say victory is just spiritual. It's just victory in some future time, or it's an inner victory, and we were afraid to talk about God actually meeting our physical needs and desires. So we know, I mean, here it says that God has the power to make poor and the hungry full, to make the sick well, but we struggle as Christians to understand, if this is the case, why aren't we all healthy and wealthy? There's kind of two issues at hand. Either the issue is with us as Christians, that we're not faithful enough. And so if we're just faithful more, if we read the Bible more, if we pray more, if we give more, then our lives would be better, that we'd be healthy and we'd be happy. And that's the pitfall of the prosperity gospel, that if you just try harder, if you do more, then you will be blessed. And any sign of poverty or anything going wrong in your life is a sign that you aren't being faithful enough, that there's something wrong with you. I just want to be very, very clear that that is a lie from the pit of hell. Um, that there is no truth in that, that that is the worldly vision of karma, that God rewards those who are faithful, and he is like a genie in the bottle, that as long as you do the right thing and say the right thing, he'll give you what you want. That is not the case. So if it's not that there's something wrong with us, the other road that people go is, well, there must be something wrong with God. Maybe he's not the good God that people say he is. Maybe the reason why I'm not having victory in my life is because God doesn't truly love me. Maybe God is just angry, vindictive, judgmental, and he's still holding against me that thing I did as a five-year-old. And so many people turn away from the faith. They stop believing because their life is hard and they don't see God as a good God. But the, the real issue here is not the issue that there's something wrong with us or it's definitely not that there's something wrong with God. The real issue is that our paradigm on winning is limited. It's flawed. God has the power to do all of these things, and he cares for his faithful ones. He cares so much that he knows better than we do what we need. He cares not only for our physical needs, but also our spiritual, emotional, mental, every need that we have. So he may not be making you wealthy, because he knows that you cannot handle the wealth and it would corrupt your character. He may not be healing you. This is all hypothetical, by the way. I'm not saying if you are poor that that's why. But he may not be healing you because he is trying to work in your heart to get you to depend on him in, his weak, in your weakness. He may not be making things easy for you because he knows when things start to get easy, your heart quickly starts to believe that you can do things without God. 
So I say all this to try to communicate that if we view winning in life on our own terms, we're kind of left with, why is the world broken? But if we can try to understand what God is doing, that winning is really on God's terms, we can trust in him that he knows the victory that we need in our life. If we go back to our example of the Monopoly game, or anytime you read a game, the first thing you want to know is, what is the objective? And so often in life, we view the objective as happiness, as stability, as whatever it is in life that you go after the most. But really, it's so much beyond that, that God's objectives are that we would know him and walk with him. And I think Hannah is a fantastic example of this. She was taunted year by year by Panina. God didn't give Hannah what she wanted. She wanted a child. And it actually says in chapter 1 that it went on like this year after year. It's really hard for us because in two chapters, we get through the whole story. If you're sitting down and reading it in the span of five minutes, you go from Hannah being distraught, Hannah getting what she wants, Hannah praises God. So we think, all right, I'm going to pray, I'm going to get what I want, I'm going to praise God, and boom, it's easy like that. But it's not like that. It goes on year after year. And so often we have areas of life that we're wanting the victory in, and year after year, we don't have the victory that we're looking for. And if I have to be honest with Hannah, I think if God would have given her a son after like six months of infertility, I doubt that she dedicates that son to the temple. I doubt that he goes and becomes the leader of Israel. God knew what he was doing. God knew what was winning for Hannah. He knew what was winning for his people. And even though for her, for year after year, it felt like she was losing, God had a bigger picture in mind. He was doing something deeper in her heart to deepen her dependence on him so that he could use her and use her son to lead and guide his people. So in seasons where maybe we're identifying with the the feeble, the hungry, the poor, the needy, the sick, the barren, we need to remain faithful to God because he guards the feet of his faithful one. And even if it doesn't seem like you're getting the victory, know that God knows what victory it is that you really need, and he is working that victory in you, whether you can see it or not. So that's the first rule is that he will guard the feet of his faithful one. The second one is he will cut off the wicked in darkness. If you're like me, you love this rule at first glance. You're like, all right, let's get rid of those wicked people. Um, Probably because you read it like, those who do wicked to me will be destroyed. My adversaries will be broken to pieces. That's not what God's stating here. The wicked are those who fight against him and his rule over the earth, and let's not be so arrogant to think that we cannot easily fall into that category by turning against God, rebelling against him, and let us not forget that we all started out in that category. That at one time, we were all um, enemies of God. He drew us near for those who are part of the family of God. And I'm not saying we can, you, know, you can lose your salvation, but I'm saying it's very easily for those who are in the family of God to become resentful and to rebel against God and to walk against him. The punishment for the wicked is that they are cut off in darkness. The concept of being cut off is, appears throughout the Old Testament, and it refers to this divine punishment from God that either occurs in this lifetime, in the afterlife, or both. 
where God explicitly states this is something that occurs in this lifetime, most often it either involves being separated from the community of faith, which was Israel at the time, or if it's in the afterlife, it actually refers to being separated after death from your family, from the community of those who believe. In our modern terms, we would, we would categorize this as being cut off from being in heaven, being in the presence of God, and being in hell. And because he says that they are cut off in darkness, we, we can come to believe that this is what he's talking about. He's talking about an eternal punishment. So therefore, we have to realize that the punishment for the wicked may not always be realized in this life. We may look around and see the wicked prevailing. We see those who hate God that appear to be living wildly successful lives. It will not last forever. Um, in light of eternity, their victory is just a fleeting blip. It'd be the equivalent of playing a game of Monopoly. We're just going to come back to that again and again and again. And somebody just sneaks by the bank before the game starts, grabs a bunch of money, puts it in front of them, and it looks like they're winning. The game starts, the banker looks and says, hey, you're only supposed to have $1,500 or whatever it is that you start the game with. You're cheating. We're not going to play with cheaters. You're out. And then you go on to play the game. That victory that they had for those fleeting moments is nothing. It didn't matter. It doesn't last. And that's what it is to have victory in this life if you're an enemy of God, if you're an adversary of God. Um, the victory is short-lived. But the tendency of our hearts, because we live in this world and it seems like life is a long time and that victory is long-lasting, is to start complaining that life isn't fair. Um, we look at our own poverty in comparison to others and start to believe the lie that God doesn't love us or doesn't care for us because we don't have what we desire. Or we see that someone else is more attractive than us, thinner than us, stronger than us, healthier than us, smarter than us, younger than us, older than us. Their kids behave better than ours. Their house is nicer than ours. They get more sleep than we get. They get nicer vacations than we have. They have a better job, more friends, better friends. Um, And it doesn't just have to be other people. Sometimes we can do this with ourselves, too. We can look back at past seasons of our life and be like, man, I was so much happier back then. I had so much more free time back then. Life was so much easier back then. Or we look to the future and say, I can't wait until I finally have enough money to do this or until the kids are old enough that we can do this or until I retire and I finally have free time. We can compare our lives to past or future seasons and just sit in a pool of discontentment because we're not looking at what true victory is. So even though the victory may feel like it's never realized, especially this side of eternity, know that the rules are set. The wicked will be cut off in darkness, even if it's not right now. And that should be a warning not to those outside, but those inside too, that we not turn against God, that we not um, become among those who rebel against him and his word. So we have the first rule that God will guard the feet of his faithful one. The second, that the wicked will be cut off in darkness. And finally, that it is not by might that man prevails. And this is one of the most countercultural statements in the Bible to our world who believes in the survival of the fittest. It is only by might that man prevails, we say. And God's turned this notion on its head. Those who rebel against where God is leading often are left with no option but to try to do things in their own might and their own strength. And God says they will not prevail. If we look at Hannah, she could have taken a play out of Sarah or Rachel's book, her ancestors, and gotten a handmaiden to bear children on her behalf. Um, That doesn't really go well either time that that has been used before in the Bible. And so rather than trying to prevail by her own might, she actually continues to cry out to God and asking God to do it in his might. 
So I think sometimes we do that in life. Sometimes we don't get where we want, and so we take things into our own hand. And I'll be honest, this is really difficult to discern. When are we taking things into our own hands, and when are we just being proactive in doing what God has called us into or working towards something? Um, How can we tell when we're taking action in faith and believing that God's going to lead us towards the victory, or where are we taking action in our own strength to get the victory that we want? In the New Testament, Paul distinguishes these two actions as walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. Um, When you walk in the Spirit, you follow God's direction and work towards what he is calling you towards. And walking in the Spirit is not just letting go and letting God. Um, There is action to be done even after God has called us towards something. There's obedience. Even after God promised Hannah that she would give birth to a son, she still had to take action and believe that she would get pregnant. This wasn't an immaculate conception. There was a role that she had to play in this as well. Now, on the other hand, when we walk in our flesh, we're actively working against what God is trying to do in our lives, and we try to get victory in our own might. Thankfully, Paul gives us a little bit of help in Galatians 5 on how we can tell the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. After all, uh, what's the statement? The, The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So often when we're walking in our flesh, we are deceived into thinking that we're actually walking in the Spirit. We believe we're doing the right thing. So how do we tell the difference? The difference, is you can tell, is by the fruit, by the result. So in Galatians 5, Paul states that the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's a quite extensive list. And the easiest way to tell if you're walking in the flesh is if your path to victory leads towards these things. If it leads you into envy and jealousy, you're not walking in the Spirit. If it leads you towards dissension and division, it's not walking in the Spirit. If in any way the path to victory requires you in some way to sin, it is not walking in the Spirit. This is not God's path for you. In fact, the ends, we often will justify this and say, well, the ends justify the means. We can, we can take whatever it is that we need to do, and we can take this action that might be questionable, but because of where it gets us, it's worth the risk. It's worth um, the sin or the gray area. But the ends never justify the means, because if the means are in any capacity sinful, the direction that you're going is not towards victory in God. The direction you're going is for your own victory. So any time where you're striving for victory in life and it's bringing out these things in you, it's either causing you to walk in sin or it's causing your heart to be in a posture of sin and discontentment and anger, it's a good time to stop and question if you're actually walking in the Spirit and if what you're striving for is actually the victory that God wants for you or if he's trying to lead you in a different direction. Now, on the other hand, if we're walking in the Spirit, we can know the fruit of this because Paul gives us the fruit of the Spirit which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're seeking to follow God and you're noticing these fruit in your life, you're on the right track, even if your external circumstances may not look victorious. And I think this list is something as a church that we don't come back to often enough to be discerning about things that are going on in life. I told Nick I wasn't going to talk about Asbury, but now he put it on my mind. 
I think this is a great list for us to examine what's going on there and say, is it producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth? Or is it producing division, dissension, and all of these other things? There may be some dissension and division because people are trying to come against it, and they're the ones walking in the flesh, for sure. But in our own lives, are the activities that we're involved with, are the things that we're pursuing, are they leading us towards a dependence on God, towards love, joy, peace, and the rest that Paul mentions, or are they leading us to that first list, envy, jealousy, drunkenness, things of that nature? So these are the rules towards victory, that God guards the feet of his faithful one, that he cuts off the wicked in darkness, and you cannot prevail by might. So as we come towards a close, um, I'm hoping that as we've been talking through this, there's something that has been coming to your mind, um, an area of your life maybe where you feel like you haven't had the victory, or maybe in an area of your life where you have had victory and you're um, relating to Hannah that you need to celebrate and praise God for what he's done. But I want to take some time just to let us kind of sit in what we've learned from God's word, to meditate on it for just a moment before we go back to our busy lives. Is there an area where you've been thinking about where maybe you feel feeble and poor, you feel beat down, you feel like you have a panina in your life who's constantly taunting, even if it's just a voice in your own head? Let's take a few minutes and consider this areas, these areas of our lives. Um, and ask ourselves, are we truly trusting God? Are we trusting him to guard our feet, to guide us towards his definition of victory? Or are we walking in the spirit or the flesh? Are we trying to prevail by our own might, or are we trusting God?